0: Our text this morning is from Genesis 24, verses 1 through 9. You'll find this passage on page 17 in the Bible on the chair in front of you. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house, and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you there, then you will be free from this oath of mine, only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. This is the word of the Lord
1: we are continuing through Genesis this morning we uh, will hear about Abraham for the last time this morning here in his very old age I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to take a look at this passage together father in heaven We all come to this place with different struggles, different distractions, different insecurities, different problems, different hurts, different feelings. And Father, all those things could cause us to miss what you have for us today, to miss learning more about your character, your love, your power, and what you've done to save us. And so I pray, God, that you would allow us, empower us to sift through the distraction to find the steady word of God in this passage this morning from Genesis. We love you. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. We've been talking about Abraham. He's a fascinating character. I feel like I've learned a lot as we've been going through these sermons. And I would say, and I think we all would agree, uh, that um, Abraham's had a lot of different kinds of scenarios in his life. He's faced some that he... Uh, are are clear, God tells him what to do, and others that are unclear, this is probably the least clear situation in his life to date. And so, um, as I was thinking about that, Abraham's life and these clear and unclear situations, I thought immediately that that also applies to our lives. We live life, and if you want to take uh, our, our every moment of life and put it in one of two buckets, it's either going to be clear or unclear. <laughs> either we know what we're doing or we think we know what we're doing. We, we know what to do. We have good guidance or we don't, or we don't. And all of us have different ratios of clear to unclear. But I, as I was thinking about Abraham, here, here's what I really think. The stories that we have seen uh, with Abraham so far, he's actually had it pretty good. <laughs> uh, he's actually had it pretty good. Let's be honest, even when he approaches a situation that would be unclear, who shows up to clarify for him? God. God's been showing up to tell him exactly what to do and exactly what's going on. Now, absolutely, Abraham had these long periods of waiting where he didn't really know what was happening. But what was he waiting between where God would engage with him and audibly speak with him? We crave that. We crave that kind of clarity in our lives. And so as I was thinking about this kind of clear and unclear situation, I was thinking about the unclear moments in my life, and I think really unclear moments give us three ways, three choices and a way to react to those things. Either we could allow the clear moments to drown out the unclear. What do I mean? We can even pretend that this moment isn't unclear at all. No, I know what's going on. I've got it figured out. I don't, nothing here is unclear. How dare you? Uh, it's, it's at worst dishonest. It's at best a, a severe lack of self-awareness. Uh, here's an example to give you. Think about funerals. Funerals. What is more uh, unsettling than the death of a loved one? And yet, what do we do? What, what do we, pressure do we feel when we're at a funeral to give some kind of clarifying statement? A platitude, if you will, that doesn't really help, if we're honest. It doesn't help. But what are we trying to do? We're trying to take what is shaking and just make it be still with some kind of weird (laughs) statement. We say weird things at funerals sometimes. Um, I just had like four stories go through my head that I'm going to skip over. See me after if you want to hear them. So that's one way we can react. We can just pretend everything's fine. I'm not sure we agree that that's healthy. The other end of the spectrum, we also agree is unhealthy. This is where unclear, when when our confusion drowns out anything that is solid in our lives. This is panic mode. This is when our our circumstances are ruling over us. When things go bad, it's all bad. It's all bad. You can't even remember the last time you knew what was going on. I would actually say that Abraham exhibits this behavior the most in the stories we've seen. When things are uncertain, all he is is uncertain. And even when God shows up to set the record straight, what does he do? He asks God, are you sure? Are you sure about that? How about this other thing? And so what is the ideal reaction? What's the third way, they might say? What's, in unclear situations, what would be the ideal way to react to those things? It would be a balance. A balance between the clear and the unclear, the confusing and the solid where clarity, where truth provides a foundation that allows us to persevere through times that we do not understand. Where even though we're in this time that we don't understand, it actually is adding value to the times that we do or the things that we do. I believe that this story, and as I was studying this story, I think Abraham exhibits this healthy, godly balance in this story. Abraham's at the end of his life, Sarah has passed away, Isaac is getting older, Isaac is not married, and that's a problem. Why is that a problem? Because what did God promise? He first of all promised that they would have a baby, and they finally did. They finally did. God delivered that promise. But not just have a baby, but he would make Abraham a great nation. Great nations require family, <laughs> a family tree. And so Isaac must be married, and he is not And Abraham does not know how that's going to happen. He doesn't know. Now, compared to the other stories in Abraham's life, this one is completely different. He does not have a vision from God where God tells him, this is how this is going to go down. He doesn't have that. There's no anthropomorphism where, where God shows up at his tent door and says, here's what's going to happen. He doesn't have that kind of clarity. He is, in a sense, left to his own devices. God's not guiding him. God's not going to miraculously provide a wife. And so here we have Abraham in an unclear situation, which is not new for him. But how does he react? Last week we examined, uh, last week we, we didn't examine, Abraham was examined. The sacrifice of Isaac was a test to see what he, if he was ready to receive the promise. And we saw that by God showing his love and and and. and pouring his unshakable promises over Abraham again and again and again. Abraham had been brought to a place where his declaration was God will provide. If that was the exam, this is the class that we are sitting under. He's giving a master class of how to be patient with God, how to to take all these things that he's learned from God and apply them in his life. Before we get to the passage of scripture, I'd like to just define something a little more narrowly. What do, what do I mean by when I say clarity or certainty? Um, and I think that as we look at Abraham, it's actually going to be a very easy transition for what is clear, what classifies as clarity for Abraham, and what classifies as clarity or certainty for us. You see, clarity, certainty is not self-derived. We don't find it inside. This is not a matter of knowing who you are only. As Calvin puts it, no one can truly know themselves unless they have first gazed upon the face of the creator then turned back to see themselves. It's not self-derived. We're not talking about something where we have this innate clarity. We just are experts at life. No, there is only one foundational, unchanging, unmovable truth, and that is God. God. So when we talk about clarity, when we talk about a. Uh, certainty. In the, in the midst of uncertainty, it only comes from one place. And this has been true for Adam and Eve. It's been true for Noah. It's been true for Abraham. It's true for us. It's the word of God. Now, the delivery system's different. Adam and Eve, Noah, Abraham, all the people before Jesus Christ. What happened? It was direct giving of words, intermittent time periods. We have God's word in writing, and it's always with us. But nonetheless, what is it? It's God's word. It's God's word. And so when we read in Scripture things like Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, the life, singular, what is he saying? I am the only unshakable, unmovable thing. I'm the only certainty. Or the Apostle John in 1 John 5, listen to how he talks about the truth of Jesus Christ. He says, We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Paul David Tripp says it this way, Life is not good because it's easy or predictable, but because the I am has invaded our existence by his grace. That's why life is certain. That's why life can be good. That's why we can, how we can find goodness in the bad times or certainty in the uncertain times. And this is the thing that Abraham is demonstrating in this passage. He lives by this truth. He's living by these foundational truths. He's navigating this really uncertain situation by the things that he knows. And what does he know? God is good. God is good. And God makes promises. And God fulfills those promises. And God loves him. And so this morning, it's quite an introduction. We haven't even got to the text yet. We're set for a 90-minute sermon today. My prayer is that we can look at the actions of Abraham, knowing that he's not this person who's on a pedestal. He has been shaped by the love and the promises of God. We can see what he is doing in this passage, and we can, by the grace of God the power of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit apply this same process to our lives as well. That's my prayer this morning. And so, without any more introduction, let's take a look at Abraham's actions in this passage from Genesis 24. So as we look at this situation. We'll get into the details here in a moment. We're going to look at just several of Abraham's behaviors and attitudes. The first thing I want to look at is in verse 1. Verse 1, now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. Let's stop right there. Abraham remembered, Abraham remembered all that the Lord had done for him throughout his whole life. That's what this phrase is for. It may even seem out of place. We're telling a story about something else. But what is happening? Abraham's old. He's in his tent. And what is he doing? He is remembering the goodness of God, all the things God has done for him and to him. Abraham knows and remembers that God is good. Abraham's thankful for God's word, God's love, God's grace, God's promises. And in this situation where he does not know what to do, he does not know what's going on, these things inform his actions and his attitudes. They bolster him. The blessings of God are holding him up. And so, Christian, as we turn again back to ourselves, when we read things like this in 1 Thessalonians 5, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. We can, I think all of us, seriously ask, well, how? How can we possibly thank God in everything? Paul, you don't know what I'm dealing with. Well, I think there's several things we can learn from Abraham here. First, we must assume the best of God. We must assume the best of God. If we do not Assume that God is good in the bad circumstances we're in. Do you know what that's going to breed? There's a 100% chance bitterness will develop in our hearts. Abraham here doesn't know how his son is going to have a family. But what is he starting with? Cherishing what God has done for him. Assuming that God's not out to get him, that God has a good plan and that he is good. Now, when things are good, it's easy to say God is good. But when things are bad, we must start with that idea that God is good. God is good. The second thing is very practical, is look where God is moving. In this even bad circumstance, where is God moving? Now, here's a problem with us. Here's a problem with me, okay? What do I do? I tend to define, predefine what God moving in this situation looks like, and then I only look for that. And I measure how God is moving by Ransom's idea of what that looks like. That's that's a bad way of doing it, Ransom. That's a bad way. Instead, as we go through hard situations, God is moving in little ways, in big ways, and we must be on the lookout for those. We must be on the lookout for those. The next piece can be hard, but... As we find those little things, as we look high and low in the big things and the small things, we must intentionally label those things as God's goodness towards us. We've got to label those things. If we don't keep a record of, of good that God has done for us, we I'm a forgetful person. I know that I am. Here's something Julie has done. She's in nursery today, so I don't have to owe her ice cream for mentioning her name. Um, don't tell, okay? Um Julia's done something. She's really good at these things. I'm not good at these things. It's a very practical thing. In our house, we have a jar, and it's full of stones, and she calls it stones of remembrance. And what we do as a family, 100% her idea, is when God does something good for us, when God answers a prayer for us, we write it on the stone, write the date on the back, and we put it in the jar. And then what do we do? Once in a while, she says, let's get out the stones of remembrance. And what a fun time it is as a family just to think about the good things God has done. Oh, yeah, remember when Stretchy Pants, our cat ran away for two weeks. We thought he was dead and he came back. Those kinds of things, right? That's God's goodness. Yes, my cat's name is Stretchy Pants. This might be the first time some of you know that's true. Um, that is true, Stretchy Pants. Long story, we're going to derail if I go there, but um, it's after Nacho Libre. Just going to go there. Short, short story, Nacho Libre. Um It's for fun. Okay, I'm totally derailed. Jeremiah, don't tell Synod, okay? All right, thank you. But listen, what has this done for me as an adult? When we go through that jar, we remember God's goodness. It does me good. I I know for a fact that it's going to bring our children to a place where they remember God's goodness in a more effective way. And so there's simple things we can do just by writing down what God has done and remembering those things. You can you can see Abraham rolling over these things that God has done. He he's very very old at this point. And there's probably not much else he can do than just think about the good things that God has done and he is blessed. So what's the principle here? When we remember God's goodness, we see God's goodness. It's not rocket science, right? When we remember God's goodness, we see God's goodness. Next, we see a, a really a, a drastic change in Abraham's life. Abraham is obedient here; he's obedient, and there's it's multi-layered. But let's start with verses two through four. Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, "Put your hand under my thigh." This is a way in ancient times you made a, an oath with each other. That I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. How is this obedience? Listen, God has told Abraham, in addition to making him a great nation, that he's going to give him this land, the land of Canaan. You can't take the country... With the people who already live in it. You see what I'm saying? And so Abraham understands that God has a plan and that plan does not involve his son marrying a Canaanite. It's very simple. Now there was a time in Abraham's life where what would he have done? Just go find a a good looking Canaanite lady and bring her on in. That's what he would have done. We've seen him do it multiple times. Just use Ishmael. Oh, come on, come on in Hagar. There's a time when Abraham would have done his own thing. And I think if we look at verse 5, I think verse 5 is actually a moment of temptation for Abraham. It doesn't explicitly say it. But as a reader, what we know about Abraham, the servant's actually asking a very practical question. And if Abraham is guilty of anything, it's being practical. Look at this. The servant says, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land you came from? And what do we see from Abraham? No compromise, no shortcuts. Verse 6 and 7. See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord God, and he's going to list off all these things that he believes about God, that God has done, that God has commanded. The God of heaven who took me from my father's house, the land of my kindred who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. Abraham is famous for cooking up some delicious shortcuts. That's what he does. He loves it. But what is he doing? He's allowing the clear promises, the clear truth, the clear love of God, the clear commands of God to guide him through this uncertain situation. It would have been easier to say, sure, just take Isaac with you. When he points somebody out, let's go for that. But no. He's, we may even think he, it seems like he's taking the long way around. And honestly, if we look at it deeply enough, we may think, well, goodness, God, God's commands, obedience has caused Abraham an inconvenience, an inconvenience. If he's going to obey everything that God has said, it's, it's, it's a much longer way around. To the servant too, he's thinking, man, there's a lot of pressure here. Can he just come with me? I mean, that's what he's thinking, Right. I think this resonates in my life. I hope it resonates. Well, I don't hope it resonates in your life because it's a sin. But the idea that we ask this question all the time, wouldn't it just be easier if, fill in the blank. Wouldn't it just be easier if, fill in the blank. Often God calls us to what feels like the long way around often God calls us to what feels like the long way around. Wouldn't it just be easier to lie? Wouldn't it just be easier to lie? Wouldn't it just be easier to bully my way? Wouldn't it just be easier to force my agenda? Wouldn't it just be easier to hate my enemies? Wouldn't that be easier? Wouldn't it be easier just to get a divorce? Wouldn't that just be easier? Let's just call call it quits. Wouldn't it be easier just to affirm their lifestyle, on the other side, in the same amount of easy, wouldn't it be easier just to reject whatever they say they are and just ignore them, remove them from our lives? Wouldn't it be easier just fill in the blank? Listen, I, I was thinking about this concept, trying to allow it to sink to my heart, and I was thinking, man, everything God asks us to do takes time. Everything he asks us to do takes time. Evangelism, discipleship, sanctification. Having mercy on people is not as easy as throwing money at it. Real mercy takes time. Reconciliation takes time. Healing takes time. Forgiveness takes time. And as I was thinking about that more, and this is another sermon for another day, but it's worth mentioning here, These things take time because they take place in the context of relationship. (laughs) All of these things take place in the context of relationship. And in fact, almost everything in God's kingdom takes place in the context of relationships. And relationships are not easy, nor are they fast. But what can we learn from Abraham in this situation? I think what we can learn is that God is not interested in the productivity of our lives. He's not interested in productivity. He's not interested in what's the shortest uh, path between point A and point B. That's not what God is interested in. What is he interested in? He's interested in faithfulness, in preparing us, his work of preparing us to receive His promises. Early on in my ministry, a, a mentor pastor told me once, I was probably in panic mode. God will not say, well done, good and successful servant. It's not what God's going to say. I've said it many times before, and I'm going to say it again, and then I'm going to kind of borrow it for the sermon, but talking about money and, and generosity and, and, and um, stewardship, God doesn't want our money. He wants our hearts, and sometimes he has to go through our money to get there. God doesn't want our productivity. What does God want? He wants you. He wants me. He wants our lives. And so what are we learning from Abraham? That God is interested in faithful engagement in the long game of following him. That's what he's interested in. And really, all these behaviors we've seen so far, we've seen Abraham being thankful, being blessed, remembering his blessedness by God. We see his obedience. We see his resisting of temptation. We see the fact that he doesn't compromise, no shortcuts. And really, I think all of this uh, culminates in what we might call faithful flexibility. (laughs) Faithful flexibility. Abraham, make no doubt about it, is taking action. Look look at verses, I mean, this whole thing. He's telling a servant to go and do something. In verses 8 and 9, he says this, If the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from the oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the five Abraham, his master, and swore concerning this matter. Abraham wants his son to be married because of the promises of God. He's acting, not rogue. He's not renegade. He's acting in the promises of God. He knows what God has promised. He's doing what he can to help with that. But, what? He's flexible about it. He's taking action, but if this action does not work, he's okay with it. You're free from the oath, he tells the servant. Why is he okay with that? It's not because he's not interested in getting Isaac married. That's literally his number one concern. He's okay with it because if this isn't the way, God has another way. He knows this. He's seen it over and over again. He knows with absolute certainty that even if his fail and feeble efforts to send the servant a long ways away to look for a particular woman for his son fails, God has promised nations and nations he will have. Nations he will have. Ian Duguid says, the doubts and the questions are gone now for Abraham. They are replaced by serene faith in God's power and his will to provide. That's what's going on. And so, church, the question is what does faithful flexibility look like in, in yours and my life? It starts with remembering and responding to the goodness of God, it continues always looking to obey. It doesn't look or take shortcuts. It trusts in God for the results. But listen, that definition is something I can't do. It's a burden to me. And I think, well, how can I live that life? How? And there's only one place. There's only one place where we can find an unshakable foundation from which that kind of life comes, and it is the steadfast love of God and his unshakable promises. That's it. That's the only place. Where can we gain confidence to navigate the shaky and uncertain times? Only in the gospel. Only in what Jesus Christ has already done. God has declared his love to us already with Jesus on the cross. And I'm going to tell you right now, he can't be, he won't be uncrucified. God has declared that that there is power in salvation, that he has saved his people in the resurrection. And I tell you what, that can't be revoked. It can't be undone. God promises us a secure salvation by grace through faith, and his promises don't change. The results aren't modified. Satan is defeated, and he's not going to get a second wind. That's not how this works. That's the only foundational truth we have. And so in this life, church, we're going to face a vast array of situations, good, bad, ugly, uglier. We're going to face a lot of things, and the only thing that can bring clarity in all those situations It's not ease, it's not comfort, it's not things of this world, it's not our own understanding, it's the presence, it's the power, it's the promise, it's the goodness and the grace of Jesus Christ. So this morning as we, as we do each week, as we approach the Lord's table, It's an opportunity, as, as Calvin puts it, to look at our creator, to look at what God has done, and then to look back at ourselves, to know ourselves better. It's really what the Lord's Supper is one of the aspects of it. We can know ourselves better. When we look here at the bread and the cup, Jesus has given us this visual of the gospel, his broken body, his shed blood. We see what he has done for us in grace and mercy, and we look back at ourselves. What can we know immediately? That we are sinners who need grace. We can know that we are sinners that praise God. We're loved. We can know that God has given us grace. We can know that our worth is not in what we do, but what he already did. And so what can we do this morning as we come and we eat? We can leave our insecurity behind, whether that's circumstantial or internal. We can leave our insecurity behind and we can grab onto and be nourished by real things, real truth, the the eternal truth, Jesus Christ. And so this morning, who should come? Who should eat? If you've made that confession, yes, I'm a sinner. I need something outside myself. I am uncertain that I can do this. Well, that is a good uncertainty because you should be certain you can't do it. You should be certain of that. And you are certain that Jesus Christ is the only way. If you've made that profession, you've been baptized, you're invited to come as a child of God. Now, the Lord's Supper is an action that we take as a body together. We do it here as a family of God. And so that's one of the reasons that baptism becomes important. If you have questions about baptism, uh, somebody asked me this week how baptism relates to the Lord's Supper. If you'd like to have that conversation, I'd love really honestly to have that conversation with you. And so if you were baptized as an infant or you've never been baptized, you're wondering how that affects the Lord's Supper, uh, I would say this, uh, come and talk to me after and we'll, we'll sort that out together. But until then, Who is it that should not come if you don't believe that you need something other than yourself? If you have trust in your own actions, it's just me, I've got this, you don't need Jesus Christ. If you have a sin in your life you refuse to repent of, the Bible makes it clear that the invitation's not for you. And honestly, we're not trying to exclude you, it just doesn't make sense for you to come and eat of something that you do not believe in. And so we'd ask you to do that abstain. Let's take a moment and pray silently. Maybe this morning we can recall some of the blessings of God in our lives before we participate in the Lord's Supper. I'll gather us back together with a prayer, and then we'll distribute the Lord's Supper. Father in heaven, we as sinners have so much to confess daily, hourly. And I pray this morning that we would not forsake your word. We would not forsake reading your word. We would not avoid reading your word. As I read this week, of all the tricks and the plans of the devil, that's the most dastardly. It keeps us from knowing the truth, knowing what is certain in our lives. We have been blessed greatly with the certainty of who you are, what you've done, who we are, what we can't do, and what you've done in our place. And so my prayer this morning is we eat the Lord's Supper As we dive into your word in our personal lives, help us to see the treasure of your word, your love in this supper. Bless this bread, bless this cup to our spiritual nourishment. May it propel us forward to hope only in you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.